Hello, everybody. Welcome to MHTV. Really pleased to have you with us tonight. We're going to be talking about um, late diagnosis of autism. And before we get started, um, let's go to Dave so that he can tell you how to join in and share your thoughts with us tonight. Dave? Hi, everyone. Thanks, Nikki. Yeah, it's great to be here again. And obviously looking forward to people joining in the conversation tonight. Uh, there's a couple of really easy ways people can do it. The first is just to the right where you're watching the picture on uh, Facebook Live. Uh, there's a Facebook Live chat. Just put in your comments, questions, any thoughts. Uh, and obviously we'll feed in as many as we can tonight. Uh, the other option you've got is if you're on Twitter, all you need to do is use the hashtag MHTV. Uh, I'll be looking for that and I'll be able to see any tweets that mention it and we'll be able to bring them in as well. But without further ado, straight back to you, Nikki. Okay, so today our fantastic guest is Victoria, who's been giving us a personal and a professional perspective. So Victoria, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, yeah, uh, so my name is Victoria. I am the, uh, in my day-to-day in my -day life, I'm uh, the head of mental health and learning disability nursing um, at the University of Derby. Um, and I'm, I am a mental health nurse, um, registered mental health nurse, although I don't work clinically anymore. Um, and I also was uh, diagnosed with autism uh, in my, I've forgotten the exact age now, but in my, my kind of mid to late 30s, so quite a few years ago. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So when we're talking about sort of autism and late diagnosis, what exactly are we talking about? So... I, th I think that the idea, the late diagnosis bit is quite interesting. I think mm. what what it tends to be used as is shorthand for not diagnosed as a child. Yeah. Um, I, I in my certainly in my mid thirties, I didn't think of myself as particularly late in my life. No, really. Um, and I know that I'm in a I'm in a few kind of groups and networks and things, and there's people sort of in their sixties and seventies and, and beyond, um, you know, being diagnosed. Mm. Um, particularly women um so I think it's it's quite a broad term but yeah it's, it's that not at school not a not not as a child diagnosis mm. I think mm. and why, why does it happen so late for people do you think so I think certainly when when I was a child um back in the 80s and the 90s um autism in in women and girls wasn't mm really um considered a thing that that happened that existed mm, yeah. and if it if it was it was usually you know people who had quite significant additional needs um you know required a, a high level of support mm. not people who who maybe um were able to function to a to a degree and attend you know normal mm. school and mm. um yeah. you know all those sorts of things so i i think and obviously over the last probably really over about the last 10 years or so there's been a, a big shift um, in understanding and there continues to be a lot of work it's, it's a really you know hot, hot area at the moment um, and this recognition that actually women and girls can also be autistic um, and they present in often in, in a different way mm. to men and boys and the, those kind of traditional and mm. um stereotypical if you like autistic mm. traits that people would would often talk about how, how would you say that they're different so okay. i think you've got things like the so for boys often there's the really stereotypical one is like they're they, they're obsessed with trains or get fixed mm. or something like that mm. um and with women there's I've, I've certainly seen some research that suggests it's often um 
different so boys it's often like vehicles and, and those sorts of things girls it's often stuff like animals or things that are just seen as a bit more um socially acceptable i suppose okay. and, and um you know don't don't kind of seem as perhaps as odd for want mm -hmm. of a better term um and i think as well there's obviously all the stuff around um women and girls being quite adept at masking so it's that ability to to sort of act in a way that appears um mm -hmm. neurotypical if you like mm -hmm. um and and kind of literally put on that mask and behave in a societally acceptable appropriate way mm. um which seems seems to be a, a, a female specific thing um well we're rewarded for it aren't we that kind yeah, of non-combative non behavior you get it, it very early on yes so, yeah you know, the things that you can do to be quiet yes exactly it's that it's Even being quiet being um Yes, being, you know, fading into the background, not creating a fuss, not doing mm. anything wrong. Mm. Um, so it's, yeah, you, you learn that quite quickly. And certainly when I was at school, I, I learned quite early to, to stop being myself and mm. behaving in certain ways because it would get me into lots of trouble. Mm. Um, and so the best thing to do was just to be very quiet and to mm. do what I was told as much as possible and yeah, hide away basically. Yeah, yeah. And most of the people who get diagnosed at sort of like after the sort of later period of, of their life, or mid to later period, are they mostly get women at that stage or it was there, are there times when men are diagnosed much later as well? Um, I don't know the, the statistics um, and certainly I suppose my own sort of interest and echo chamber leads me to lots of women, mm. um, late diagnosed women. Yeah. Those are a lot of the groups I'm involved in. It's kind of the research I tend to notice and think, oh, I'll have a read of that and all the rest mm. of it. Mm. Um, that I, that's not to say that there aren't men and certainly from my links with that I do still have with clinical practice, mm. I know that there are lots of um, men out in mental health services who've maybe not been diagnosed um, mm. and maybe have co comorbid mental health issues um, either alongside or as a result of mm. um, autism and, and also things like ADHD yeah. um, that have perhaps been masked by other things. So mm. um, I think certainly men have been more likely to be diagnosed historically or boys diagnosed yeah. earlier um but that's not to say that there aren't people who yeah. kind of reach their adulthood and and yeah. haven't had the the right sort of pathways and treatment mm. and everything can you tell us a little bit more about about your journey how it happened for you yeah yeah so um as, as i kind of said i was always, always a bit weird at school um i you know, I, I grew up somewhere, uh, grew up down south in quite a, a rural village, but within the commute about to London. So it's a bit of a weird place to live, actually. Um, so we were quite isolated. Um, and I think I always just assumed it was because I was isolated and, you know, um, I, I didn't, I, I, I do have a sister, but I was nearly seven when she was born. So for mm. a long time, I was a, think of myself as an only child yeah. um and then by the time she came along it was a big age gap um so you know my, my schooling was quite difficult all a bit 
always found it difficult to make friends to kind of understand those social connections and I didn't have the the language to explain that then mm. um I always did okay at school academically um I could one of the things that I have is um hyperlexia so I could always read um I don't remember there being a time where I couldn't read yeah uh, I went to school you know age five able to read mm. novels um and it was quite a shock when I discovered that that's not a thing for everybody and I had to teach my own children to read mm. um not realizing that it's not an innate thing mm. um and basically throughout kind of particularly when I got to secondary school things got really difficult for me um and I had lots of um lots of mental health problems mm. um lots of kind of anxiety and depression mm. it was labeled as self-harm you know lots of mm. things going on there um and looking back I you know I can understand that was because I was struggling to fit and to find you know to work out where I should be in society and in social groups but um you know it it, it went on mm. I went to university um, and continue to kind of struggle and have different problems um, it was always whenever I did see professionals though it was always put down as anxiety depression that sort of thing yeah. um, I've, I've had bits and pieces of counseling and antidepressants and stuff they've never never really well I always found them very difficult the antidepressants are quite mm. sensitive to that sort of stuff mm. Um, and I didn't like the way it made me feel. Mm. Um, I'm still very young at this stage, I would say. Yeah, yeah. So this is sort of like early 20s. Mm. Um, but kind of muddled through like you do. Yeah. Um, I did my degree and worked for a bit. And then I've worked with um, people with uh, what was called then autism and challenging behaviour, actually. Um, this is, I don't think we'd use that term anymore, mm. unfortunately. Mm. But um then I went and did my nurse training um, to be a mental health nurse. Um, lots and lots of people who go into mental health nursing have their own lived experience, yeah. so yeah. no different there. Um, again, trying to kind of make sense of things as well as wanting to, to, to help people who had similar experiences. Mm. Um, and, you know, it was kind of all that period it was it was still up and down and very you know there were periods that were okay but also periods that were really really difficult with my own mental health mm. um and then it, as I kind of went into my late 20s I met my now husband um and we had some kids um and it was really so I had, we had three children all under five at one point um mm. <laughs> which I do not recommend um, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so perhaps, you know, unsurprisingly, that was a very difficult time. Um, and it was really with with my third child, um, I really re went, you know, was really struggling with my mental health. Yeah. Went to the GP and I said, I, I was like, I don't know what this is. I think it's personality disorder is where it fits, actually, with, with what was going on. So I got sent to um for diagnosis you know for review and di got diagnosed with personality disorder borderline personality disorder um got sent to a group which was one of the worst things i've ever had to do yeah. um so that sort of uh, now knowing what i know that sort of group 
sort of DBT, CBT type approach. Mm. It's just horrendous. Yeah. Being a mental health nurse alongside all this, I absolutely didn't want to be seen as uh, being non-compliant um, and have that written on my record. So I dutifully went to these groups um, and was just so pleased when they were over. Yeah. Um, and I always remember they gave me, so one of the things they gave us was a, an emotion wheel. So I don't know if people have ever seen that, you can just Google it, there's lots yeah. of them on there. And I always remember them giving us these, they printed them out and you know presented them all to us. And they were like, help you name what you're feeling and all this stuff. And I just remember looking at it, being absolutely horrified at all these emotions I was supposed <laughs> to be able to feel. I was like, surely, surely you don't need all of them. You just need like, all right not all right you know yeah uh, and it was very bright and colorful and that's just let you draw like, your own and you'd have just done it in fours <laughs> just yeah, it. Like, you just need two really <laughs> like an on off okay no yeah. i like that and then again there's that's good black and white thing. an emotion <laughs> stick than an emotion wheel though i think yes that's, <laughs> yeah. that's it i'm gonna have an emotion stick um I mean, and yeah, when I look at it now, I'm like, oh yeah, that, there was a sign. Um, but basically I went all through this and I didn't really get any better, you know, yeah. nothing, nothing. Worked. And I did do, you know, I did all the things that, that they're telling me to do and I still felt awful. And I, I was at a point where I just, I felt like there was something intrinsically wrong with me, like fundamentally wrong, fundamentally missing. Um, and I'd kind of talk about not feeling like I was a real person, um, like not a complete person um, and whatever it was that everyone else in society, because obviously when you're like that, everyone else is great and it's just you. But whatever everyone else was able to do to live normal, happy, functional lives, I just can't do it and because there was something fundamentally wrong. Um, and I was really stuck in that and there wasn't really any more help at this point for you know I've been discharged because I've been to my group mm. um so you have to go away and put it into practice that's, that's what I tell you mm. um so I spent a lot of time on the internet just trying to make sense of how I was feeling and just eventually stumbled into women and autism sort of discussions women and by um, borderline personality disorder and the crossover mm. with autism yeah. So it was all from that, from the from the internet and my own sort of research and people's experiences that I'd kind of discovered out there that I I ended up going down that route. Um, and the more I read, the more I was like, it's, it, it, initially I was like, oh, I don't think this works. But then the more I kind of understood it and the more I sort of thought about my own kind of life and experiences. And it was like, actually, this all makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, went to my GP um, after a bit with all of my all of my arguments prepared, not really thinking, oh, yeah, it's a GP appointment. I'll have like two minutes. Um, and he was he was I didn't have a problem. It was very good. He, he was like, why do you want a diagnosis? And I said, well, because of some of the problems I've had and kind of the validation for me and. Mm also gives you protection under kind of you know protected characteristics we'll come back to that yes 
Uh, so he referred me. Mm. I had a, I did have a bit of a wait. I had about a two year wait. Mm. By which by which point I'd done so much of my own research and learning that I was at the point where I was like, well, if they don't diagnose me, then they are absolutely wrong. Mm. <laughs> and I'll cross that bridge. Um, and I went through the process, and yeah, it was it was pretty pretty quick once I was in. You know, it's yeah. a, a couple. We did the assessments, and at the end of the second assessment, she's like, yeah, I can tell you today that you do you do have um autism and do meet the criteria for it mm. so um and it was hugely validating and also at that point like I said I'd already done a lot of the working through you know reviewing my life and thinking mm. about lots and lots of things so I was just like oh excellent I can just get on with things now and it's all okay and I can tell I can say well I can't do this or I can't do that very well mm. or I struggle with this mm because I'm autistic um, and that's great and it and it has ever since then it's been so much better um, and almost you know my mental health has never been so good mm. um, yeah so it's, it's been a, such a positive experience a long way getting there and a lot of my own yeah work to get there mm. um, but absolutely yeah made a huge difference in the end Yes, it's a bit of a long meandering story but no then... no it's really interesting there's so many questions now and um, i guess one of the things is is there anything do you think a point in which services should or could have caught it because it's almost like there's a list of women's illnesses you're allowed to have and they just allocated them to you at different points of your life yeah i think i've i've thought about it a lot i've thought about it a lot as my you know having been a mental health person you know nurse yeah. myself out there assessing people and the way you are taught as a mental health professional to assess people is so geared towards which of these mental illnesses do you have? There is, there is nothing, you know, within the standard assessment that we would do, the mental state examination, you don't consider things like that would fall into neurodiversity. So it's, yeah. it's just missed completely. We a lot better, haven't we? Yeah. Um, and I think that, so they, they yeah, if, if the right questions had been asked when I was, I was about 16 or 17 the first time I went to a GP mm. um, with kind of problems. Mm. Um, and yeah, if the right questions had been asked then they could have, I don't know, they would have diagnosed me right away, but I could have been sent on a very different path. Mm. What um, questions should people have asked? Well, I think it's, like I say, it's rather than focusing on those those mental state examination questions about, you know, how are you feeling, you know, and have you got thoughts of harming yourself, are you doing this, are you hearing voices, seeing anything, all that sort of stuff. Mm. I think it's some of those things around the social side of things, yeah. you know, do, do you struggle in social environments do you do you have sensory issues mm. and i'm not saying you need to also do a full like autism or, mm. or adhd or whatever assessment mm. but i think there is space for some of that within we're, we're so in mental health we're so fixed on mental state examination yeah um we i think it excludes other things mm. and we talk about like diagnostic overshadowing um. where people have a physical health problem that because, but because you're looking for you know mental health it's you, mm. you put those symptoms down to mental ill health and it's the same thing isn't it it's it's missing it because you're looking for certain mental illnesses or diagnoses mm. um, 
so yeah I think I think it's more of the consideration to the social things rather than just have you got do you live with somebody who can look after you if, if you if you need it um you know which is what it tends to be mm. yes it's such a strange thing isn't it so on one hand um it's almost like not fitting into society shouldn't be an illness should it like because our society is so messed up if you do fit into it you've got to ask yourself yeah. some serious questions and yeah. also like what young person doesn't feel weird compared to everybody else like everybody feels weird don't they yes it's yeah. such a such a hard thing for you particularly as you were saying you know you didn't have anything else particularly to compare it to to yeah. know what your experience was yeah and how it was different and certainly the other thing, looking back now, my my mum, she died. She's been dead for about eleven years now. So uh, she was she died before I even went through the the diagnosis. Yeah. Um, but looking back now, I think to myself, I'm pretty sure my mum was on on the autism spectrum. Mm -hmm. She she was an odd lady. She mm -hmm. really struggled with social things. Mm -hmm. She had some very fixed ideas and beliefs about stuff um and I think that's the other thing so you you obviously only know what you live in and if that's the norm yeah for you um you perhaps don't see it so mm. yeah it is, it is very difficult um mm. what was uh, the hardest of the what, what sort of issues are hardest for you and um, is there anything that's surprisingly much easier for you than for other people I mean, you mentioned your reading skill thing <laughs> I think um. Yeah, so I'm, I, I'm really good at, I mean, I, I now I work in quite a, an operational type role because mm -hmm. I work as a manager and all the rest mm -hmm. of it. Um, and I, I'm really good at taking in lots of information and picking out the bits that, that matter. Mm -hmm. I'm good at like big picture stuff, but I, I can also get quite fixed on certain things. Um, I'm, I think... What's the difficult things for me are some of the things that you're expected to do, like networking and mm. that that sort of having those having contacts and, and doing all mm. those sorts of things. Mm. Um, because I don't it doesn't it, it's not even that it doesn't come naturally. I don't even think about it. I just think, well, I'm doing my thing. So then if somebody needs me, then they'll come and find me, won't they? They'll, they'll come and get me or. Mm. Um, you know and certainly when I've been at conferences and stuff and people start talking to me and you know doing all the small talky stuff and I just say well, I don't care I just don't care <laughs> why, why have we got to have this conversation <laughs> I was sitting here quietly with my thoughts and now that you're here yeah I was all right where, where you live I don't care I don't yeah. know you yeah. Yeah, the weather or you know all those things that we do um and I don't really get it mm. um have you got yourself a nice badge that says, you know, don't do that to me? I've, do you know, I have talked before about like having like a bit of paper. I could just have, you know, a brief thing. You used to have them in COVID, didn't you? So like, I'm not a hugger kind of thing. Yes. Well, see, COVID, COVID was in many ways terrible. I don't want yeah. to downplay it. But other parts of it were just great. I mean, my life in some ways barely changed mm. because, it, you know, I was at home um, hanging out with my family who mm. were, who I, that, you know they're tolerable um, so, high praise indeed yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and suddenly I didn't have to go anywhere or do yeah. all the things I didn't want to do so yeah. I could just go for nice walks in the countryside with the dogs it's mm. like that's great mm. uh, and yeah and no one was allowed to touch me 
which is brilliant. Um, fortunately, where I work, I mean, I'm obviously very open about it. Oh, also, people, people know you. Don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah and we'll joke about it. But, but there yeah. is something about this kind of like uh, the the expectations are placed on you in conferences, in like breakout warm up exercises. Oh, yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean, nobody, nobody likes having to make towers of marshmallows and chopsticks anyway. But there are t- there are people for whom it's a particular torture. I think. Yes, it's funny you should say that because we were planning our team away day today, and I said, "Do we, do we want to build a raft or build a, a like a tower that you drop an egg from or something?" Obviously, nobody did, because um, we we all know that that's awful. I was um, once in a group where I was the one in charge of tying the ropes, and we sank really quickly. <laughs> that's been one of my particular. But I was never like a like brownie or anything, you know. I don't know how to tie ropes. I don't think we double knotted them. We only made it like 50 yards. We were the first ones down. Luckily, we were all strong swimmers, but it it was a particular hellscape for me. But I fear we're digressing. (laughs) (laughs) But it is, it's all these things that people, it's stuff as well where people go, oh, it'll be fun. And I'm like, in what way is this fun? Fun (laughs) is like being at home with a book. Mm. That's fun, not Mm. having enforced social time with people I don't know very well it's interesting isn't it? that kind of one of the things that's really changed for us is this um this expectation of emotional labor at work like to be yes. friends at work and whenever you work somewhere people we're just like a big family so like, yeah. well we're not are we we're here to get our money and do a good job and then to go home yeah you know yeah. there's not it's that extorting extra work out of people by making them feel like you care about them is not nice behavior and it's, no. it's something that I think pre-pandemic I didn't really notice whereas now I do notice it and it doesn't wash in the same way I think that it would have done it, it doesn't wash in the same way what's interesting is then to be fair there are a whole group of people who really miss that and it yeah. was really important yeah. to them yeah for other reasons yeah. so but I mean, um, you can care about people and, and grow a real relationship yes that's not and that can happen anywhere at work yeah. anything but there's yeah. something about that kind of like false intimacy that's pressed on you yes. in order to make you feel obligated that happens yeah. a lot in corporate worlds it, which it is not does. really acceptable no. if you want extra work happy will pay them extra money yeah unfortunately see now because mm. i've got a diagnosis i've got a letter from my doctor that says i don't have to do those things as i tell my manager quite often <laughs> i'm very surprised to see that it's not printed behind you yeah i'm, I'm, on a I'm disappointed yeah. <laughs> I'm like a poster it's very yeah. to let people know yeah so no and i did i literally got a, a letter a short mm. time after diagnosis and it basically says victoria has autism mm. um and shouldn't be made to do anything she doesn't want to do i said this is brilliant i'm gonna put this on everything bottom of the emails yeah so uh, that kind of takes kind of into the world of work really neatly though doesn't it so you know you you seem to be describing you know work environment is actually quite supportive of you yes yeah yeah and that's not the case for everybody and I guess it's quite useful for us to know and and just to think about you know how best can people be supportive but also maybe think a little bit about managing this self-disclosure and what you might need to think about with that yeah so I I kind of alluded to the fact that one of the reasons I went for diagnosis was about protection kind of under Equalities Act. Um, 
and, and at work. So before my, my job before this was a very different experience. Now, to be fair, I didn't have a diagnosis of autism, but at that point I did have a diagnosis of um, borderline personality disorder. Which is a very um, different badge to be carrying. Which is a very, I'm acutely mm. aware of the difference there. Mm. Um, and I actually never disclosed that to my manager because I'd heard him talk about people with, with PD. Mm. Um, so I never disclosed, I did just did talk to HR and um, occupational health. Uh, who were very supportive in a different mm. way but I had an absolutely horrendous time in that job I'm um, very much I mean at the time I was not very well mm. um, and 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 that was at the point where I thought there's something wrong with me and all the rest of it so but looking back now really it was it's almost constructive dismissal what happened yeah, yeah. Um, and so when I when I went through this um, where I work now, um, I, I, I made the decision quite early that actually I was going to tell my manager I was going for this diagnosis, mm. um, be very open about it, see what the responses were that I got because I wasn't going through it again. Mm. Um, I wasn't going through the, the difficulties. Um, generally, I, well, everybody uh, at, at work has always been really supportive the most I've had is sort of a bit of surprise initially yeah. because obviously I'm articulate I'm in a, a a good job and have a career and I'm able to function uh, reasonably well some of the time um so that's the most that I've had um and then you know like I say uh, because I think I've been very open and I work I work with mental health nurses yeah. primarily my team is all almost all mental health nurses um and the everybody else I work with is, is healthcare professionals in kind of our college. Mm. So there is a lot of empathy and understanding and compassion there. Mm. Uh, and and I think in academia is a different environment to mm. healthcare. Different, there's certainly not a place without its pressures, but it's different pressures and yeah. different different things. So I I think I made a very conscious decision to be open and to, to, to disclose because I didn't want to, mm. I didn't want to carry it around like a secret and to then have to tell, you know, be, have to tell somebody at some point um, and for it to be a problem. I wanted to know from the word go what sort of reception I was going to have. Um, now I, that's about me and where I work and the people I work with. Mm. Um, and the industry that I work in, not everywhere is is going to be like that. You know, not everybody has mm. that baseline of professional knowledge and understanding. Mm. Um, not everybody has kind of such such robust um, equality training and, and all the rest of it that goes along. Yeah. Uh, not everywhere would, would encourage discussion the same way that obviously academia does too. Mm. So. Um, I think there are some places it's, it's something for people to think about very carefully about what's yeah. right for them mm -hmm. um and I suppose I did I did sort of test it first with close friends mm. um you know and, and I didn't put a massive Facebook post out there or anything and mm. I told people gradually over time as as I was going through the process and as mm. um as it came up really mm. um and then it's kind of kind of turned into more of a, a thing because obviously I decided to write an article about it and got it Davis published and then, yeah yeah so 
yeah it's a difficult thing to think about isn't it because obviously your, your own experience has been sort of so polar opposites of each other and yeah. I think it's hard to tell if part of that is the diagnosis that you were carrying because I think that you know someone's mental distress or someone's diagnosis is is an entirely personal thing but it becomes an entirely public thing as well doesn't it yeah you can't yeah. have half a secret you know you can't just tell one person at work that's very unlikely to, to be something that will happen and you know you can try and introduce something slowly but that's not how working farms happen they're like <laughs> particularly if it's a secret you've asked someone <laughs> to keep it quiet <laughs> so yeah, it's, absolutely it's a, you have to be really ready don't you I think to be public with information about your health if you go that way yes and I I can't really I mean I know I remember telling my manager I've had a couple of different managers I can remember telling sort of those people um I think I've I'd had kind of conversations with colleagues that I was closer to mm. uh, or I'm closer to and then I, yeah I'm, again I've never really just sort of announced it but it's definitely common knowledge um mm. among people yeah. um now mm. but it's I, I knew once I told one person, certain one person at work, certainly, mm. that yeah, I was basically I need I needed to do that, assuming that that would mean everybody will yeah. know. Yeah, that's um, a good point. Yeah. Yeah, um, and that's you fine. Ready. But, but, yeah. yeah, that that was that mm. was my my choice with it all, mm. um, and I think I, I because I'm a manager. Um, mm you know, and I'm, I'm directly kind of responsible for other people. Mm. And I, I'm, I'm really keen to, to role model um, and to sort of show that it's okay. And, you know, we can be fallible and we can have other things going on and that's okay because we'll do our jobs and yeah. come to work and, and do things. Because that is not the message that I think uh, you and I both got when we were training at all. Not really. Uh, absolutely not. You, you do not talk about... Um, any of your own problems ever mm. um, and I'm not necessarily talking about to to people that you're caring for I think mm. that's a that's a different conversation mm. about how you dis self-disclose to people that you're you're working um, with in a professional capacity mm. um, but that yes the, the, there's still that still that massive stigma I still interview stu prospective student nurses who will at the end of the interview say to me Oh, I didn't know whether to say anything, but I've, you know, I've had my own issues and yeah. is that going to, can I still come on the course? Mm. And, you know, and you have, you have discussions about, well, you know, yes, of course it's fine. It's about what's right for you and all the rest yeah. of it, but still massive anxiety and stigma around mm. these things. Yeah. I'm yeah. not completely clear. I think from practice areas. Yeah. Uh, no. Much better. Better. But <laughs> yeah still still um, be difficult so for anyone who's self-disclosing be really sure that that's what you want to do have thought it through be in a union <laughs> yes yeah and I think those are that's sound advice definitely um yeah and you mentioned before about the importance of the equality act for, for you so could you tell us a little bit about that as well I think I think this is probably because because I'm autistic I like a rule and a regulation so I was very well if I've got it in black and white that gives me that protection um and I suppose because I was in a better place you know mental health wise I was thinking well actually I'd be able to 
to argue this time and to, to fight and to justify and to, to explain. I've, I've never had to, I've, you know, like I say, everything's been absolutely fine. Mm. Um, but I think for me, it was, it was that legal protection was really important. Mm. Um, and who knows, it still might be in the future. You never know what, what might come up or, you know, what might, might happen. Mm. So, yeah, it was, it was just, uh, I think having that in, in black and white, really, that, I've got some protection and nobody could say well because of the way that you are you 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 can't do your job or yeah. something like that um, yeah it is really important to know what your rights are and the, yeah. the thing as well that's sticking with me when you're talking about getting your diagnosis the fact that you were um a qualified professional digitally literate uh, able to to understand something is wrong I can do something about it I mean I, I you know, what about some but he doesn't have those skills. How on earth do they find their way through that maze? Well, I've, I've thought this a lot. And like I said, I'm in a few kind of like Facebook groups and stuff with people going through. And just with, with women, it's like late-diagnosed like women with autism. Mm -hmm. um, and the groups all accept people who are self-diagnosed or going through the process as well. Mm -hmm. You don't have to have a formal one. Mm -hmm. um, and there are so, like every day, there's people on there going... I've been to my GP or I've been to this and they've said no. And, mm. and I mean, you can't get involved with every single thing, but I do, there's so many that I read and I think, well, if you just, yeah. oh, if you just, it's because you said this, that they've, they've dismissed you. It's like, mm. oh, there's one off the waiting list or it's because you've done that. Mm. And absolutely. I'm, you know, I'm articulate. I know how to, I know how, the NHS works I know how to manage the system and how to negotiate the different pathways mm. um anybody without that level of knowledge and understanding really it's amazing anybody gets referred and, and manages mm. To, mm. to negotiate it and I'm also you know you, you get given the AQ50 so that's a problematic um uh, well, that measure listening mm. sorry do you say what that is for people who perhaps don't know? Oh, sorry, yeah. Um, the autism, what is it? Autism question, it's a questionnaire yeah. of 50 questions to decide whether you are probably um, mm. on the, well, it's whether you go for a further assessment or not. Yeah. So I can't remember what the scores are, but if you score within an upper range, then, then it's ind indicative of referral mm. for further assessment. Mm. Um, but they are they're quite geared around traditional uh, un understanding and ideas of male presentations of autism. Mm. So when I got sent that, I'm quite happy to kind of write all over it going, well, hang on, but this, or to, to kind of make interpret it, because I, yeah. I work with data a lot. Mm. Other, other people, of course, aren't going to do that. They think they're going to look at it and go, oh, oh, well, no, I don't do any of those things. Mm. So mm. especially if you're autistic and you're quite rigid in your thoughts. Yeah, yes, um, no, yes, no. Yeah. yeah. Um, so no, I, I think, I know there is quite a lot of, of research and work going on out there in different places at the moment about looking at autism in women and about different measures and, mm. and ways of assessing mm. Mm. Um, and making it more um, holistic mm. rather than male Mm. Mm. Um, yeah. Are there any resources that because I can where we're getting towards the end of me still haven't spoken to David all tonight. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> 
I have been I have been on WhatsApp seeing if you also anything it's fine I'm not just ignoring him but can you think talk us through any resources that maybe are out there or things that will be helpful for anyone you know who wants to understand perhaps themselves more ask questions or see how they can help what could people be looking at yeah um so for people who are nurses registered nurses um the RCN um, has a really actually a really good range of resources that only came out a year or two ago. Um, so they're um, they're on their on their website somewhere, yep. um, and they mm -hmm. they have resources for working as somebody with. I think it might be neurodiversity rather than autism yeah. specifically that they cover. Um, uh, working with people, there's like information for managers as well on there. From what I remember, they've got a really good range of of stuff and. Um, I know when I read it, I thought, oh, yeah, this is this is helpful and sensible, um, and probably of use yeah. to people. Yeah. You've got places like the National Autistic Society that's always good for, you know, a, a general understanding. And they they do have pages about autism in women and girls mm. um, uh, and same with the NHS as well. So, they're, they're, yeah. you know, uh, nothing radical, but they're good, good starting points for if you want to kind of know more. Mm. Um, and then you can move into the depths of Google. At your peril. At your peril, <laughs> yes. So, Dave, hello. Is there anything you wanted to say? Because we're, we're coming to the end now. <laughs> uh, uh, it's been a really interesting sort of conversation to listen into. So I'm quite happy not to have been interjecting too often tonight. Uh, I've obviously been tweeting some of the uh, links that uh, Victoria shared with us before the episode and some of the things that she's uh, shared you know, during it tonight. Uh, and I suppose it's just really interesting to hear, I, I suppose one of the, the, the questions that I had in my head was how much do you think it would have been different if you'd have got a diagnosis much more early? How do you feel like it's kind of affected your life trajectory? So, I mean, it, it, it obviously has, but I guess I wouldn't be literally here, would I? So I think I'm always quite reluctant to look back at well what could have been because that's been and gone and, and this is where we are so um I, I just sort of think about okay well and I, I suppose actually that two-year period where I was on the waiting list is where I dealt with all of that and kind of got over it and you just have to let it go don't you well you know it is what it is so yeah and, and I suppose, you know, from, from my understanding, sort of diagnosis for autism on the NHS can be quite a slow process. So, yeah. you know, was there anything that you ever thought about sort of trying to go private to, to speed up or, or not? I did consider it. Um, so I thought about it, but I think I was, I didn't have any, um, by the time I'd gone for the, gone for the, you know, to be referred. I'd done so much research that I was pretty certain. Um, mm. And I'd, I had talked to people at work, you know, I had talked to manager, managers and people at work and friends and that. So I felt quite safe to, to wait, to just, to just wait for that time and, and for it to happen. And I knew it was a two year waiting list. So that's okay. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd kind of mentally budgeted for that, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but I know, you know, I think where there is sometimes people need it, don't they? I, I'm not, you know, I wasn't applying for PIP for, you know, for any sort of disability benefits or anything like that. So it's slightly different, you know, to people who've got an absolute more of a desperate 
or a, a timely need for it. Um, and it, that, that's, it's an issue, isn't it, that you have to wait for so long on the NHS for, for a lot of people. It is. Is there one thing that that people could sort of like take away and, and that would do that would change things or that would really help, do you think? Oh, I don't. One thing. Um, no, I think I think it's just about I, I think it's just about kind of being open to those conversations, you know, listening, hearing what people are telling you. You know, if you if you've got somebody who is saying, Oh, I think I might be autistic or any sort of mm. neurodiversity mm. um really hearing that and rather than sort of going oh don't be so silly or oh well you can't be autistic oh, oh we're all a bit autistic that's the other one isn't it of course, so that people love to throw out there um and I, I'm like at the point now where I'm like well actually no I've prepared a short powerpoint presentation about why you're wrong on that um please send it <laughs> tweet it out Let and me, also i think you really do prove on like a double double loop on why that's not the case yeah <laughs> i love it it's only proof but it's actually proof proof yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean yeah but they don't say oh everyone has a bit of cancer do they no, everyone has no, exactly such a no. weird thing to say we're all on the cancer spectrum <laughs> Particularly when someone is telling you this is something about me that you need to yeah. know and then someone else goes that's not special yeah <laughs> why exactly exactly I don't get it yeah um yeah um i think that's that's probably the most important thing i've really really enjoyed talking with you and i have to say um it's just so impressive that you're able to just take a step back from it as well because it must have had some very overwhelming times and actually just use it as something to to learn from and actually be around for other people to see if you're yeah. trying to be a role model you're doing a really good job well, that's the benefit <laughs> of only having two emotions you see <laughs> and on that note <laughs> Dave is there anything that you wanted to add by the way before we um, finish up any last thoughts I do want to say that obviously you know we, we're normally a weekly publication MHTV yeah. but there's going to be an extra special episode tomorrow uh, from Cardiff uh, because it's the 2023 Skellen Lecture, yeah. uh, which has been done at Tardis University. Mental Health Oscars, year. everybody, the Mental Health Oscars. Absolutely. Mm. Uh, and I'm looking forward to being there in person, but for anyone that can't make the trip down to Cardiff, uh, we're going to be sharing the live stream on uh, the MH, uh, MHNA uh, YouTube page. Uh, so when we're running the credits, there's going to be a QR code uh, so if you want to join in with that tomorrow, you can scan that QR mm. code and it'll tell you, take you to the page. And then the other thing to say is uh, next week, we're going to be joined by Dr. Emily Setti, who is going to be talking about misogyny, masculinity and well-being. So I think uh, we're, you know, due another excellent episode we next are. week as well. Thank you very much for your time, everyone, today. Really enjoyed that. And thanks again to our brilliant guest. Thanks, Victoria. Good night, all. Good night, guys. Bye.